Welcome back to Season 3 of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Stefano Bini. In this series of podcasts, we are highlighting the best presentations from the January 2020 San Francisco Digital Orthopedics Conference, otherwise known as DOCSF, presented in partnership with UCSF's Department of Orthopedic Surgery, and the November 2019 DOCSF Berlin Conference, presented in partnership with Frontiers Health. In this, episode 22 of season three, we invited our friends from Healthware International to share the DOCSF stage, and this is the second of their two talks. Healthware is a consulting firm with expertise in launching and implementing digital health solutions in Europe and across the globe. So it was fitting that they should present the leader's roadmap to digital health as their talk. Join us on the DOCSF stage for the second presentation, this one delivered by Jerry Chili. How do we go forward with this? The, the green button in the center? Can, any, yes. can anyone help me? This the is a technology conference, right? <laughs> We're going to step away from technology, which means look up from your phones, everyone, for a second, please. Pay attention to me. I feel really left out right now. Everyone's so busy with their phones. So we, we meaning healthware, Kristen and myself, have led a lot of workshops with a lot of companies for which we sign NDA, so we really can't talk about what comes out of these workshops, but I, I will share something with all of you, especially in this part, the understand part, okay? What do people talk about besides, well, it would be easier if I could get to the hospital. Well, it would be easier if I can enter the records if you're a doctor. Well, this is what my patient journey is like at this point. If you really spend time to listen, in just about every and each therapeutic area that we've worked in so far, there is one common element. And really our hope is that by the end of today's presentation, you will take this back with you. This is what people want, okay? Empathy is a key part of healthcare that at the end of the day, most patients say, I just wish I had the five minutes or the feeling, this is almost more important than the cure. It is the cure. So we feel that we need to start bringing this human factor back into the conversation, but there's a problem. Will a digital future make empathy even worse? Like doctors don't have enough time to talk to patients. I had to like almost beg you to look at me up here, right? <laughs> so some of you may, may have seen Eric's photos on, on Facebook in the last month. Okay, what Eric did is went around and took photos of everyday situations, then used Photoshop to remove the smartphones. This is what's happening to us as people, all right? So when we talk about healthcare and empathy and technology and data and securing the data, this is what's happening. So how can we hope to bring the human factor of empathy back to into what should be the most important part. This is my favorite, <laughs> okay? <laughs> so I wanna talk to you about a personal experience, and I think there is actual hope with technology in this area that seems to be going away. Now, you can hear from my accent, where do you think I'm from? New York, no. Io sono italiano, vengo da Napoli, okay? 
But any of you from the US, New England area probably remembers this name, 9X. I was working actually as a sound engineer and producer in recording studios with rappers early, early on in my career. I have a music degree. And all of a sudden, 9X Science and Technology, which is part of Bell Labs at the time, before Bell Labs broke apart, called my studio and said, we need an audio engineer, we're having problems with sound and something we're building. This was before the internet really took off. And what they were building is an interactive audio-video, high-resolution, real-time distributed system across the northeast of the United States. But the audio sucked. And they wanted somebody to come in, take a look, tell them, look, do this, do this, fix it this way. Which is what I did. I went there for two weeks. And then it was really interesting that a lot of cool gadgets, a lot of cool toys, and then something horrible happened is that it actually started working. This was just a demo, right, out of their labs. The CEO walked in with the head of some other company, and I said, oh, look at this demo we have. The other person loved it. The CEO said, we should have this throughout the company. <laughs> no one was ready to do anything with it. This was just a demo, proof of concept. And they asked me, Jerry, can you stay on for another couple of weeks to help put this together? I said, yeah, sure, no problem. It involves Unix programming language. I said, yeah, sure, no problem. I had no idea what it was. But Fast forward, what we ended up doing is deploying these Spark Sun computers in six central offices throughout the United States. And these computers, their job was to talk to each other and hopefully keep talking to each other. So they would switch the audio and video when people wanted to place a call. This is before Skype, remember? And since now we had the CEO of the company of about 250,000 people and his friend, CEO of another company, Somebody had to sort of dial into these things every morning to make sure they were still talking to each other and they were going to be ready for the day. Guess who that person was? I was, I was in my 20s. You know, I was getting paid really great money to do this. And so we did this for about three years, and it was great because what started for two weeks, not only did it give me a job for three years, I learned a ton of stuff. And actually, one of the reasons I'm here talking to you today in a healthcare tech company is because one of the projects that came out of this too was the very first telemedicine proof of concept between Columbia Medical Center, Cornell University, to share high-definition imaging for surgeries or diagnostics and whatever. Those computers were doing it. But after about three years, the internet really started taking off. Some of the other technologies went to the data side of things. And I picked up other projects along the way, but I had a job to do. I had to go back and shut this thing down. So I went back to that data center, and that computer was still sitting there on that shelf. And I had to turn it off. Very simple. Turn it off, put it in a box, ship it away in a warehouse, so it spent five years you know, for depreciation tax reasons. It was only three years, so two more years we had to hold on to it before throwing it out. And I went there, and I looked at it. Now, mind you, every morning, I would dial into this thing remotely. And I was suddenly overwhelmed with grief. I mean, it sounds crazy, right? <laughs> This is a box that doesn't care about me. It's wires, plastic, metal. And I felt badly. I felt badly that I had to turn it off because it didn't do anything wrong. It did its job faithfully. It did exactly what we wanted it to do. And to make matters worse is the way you have to turn is a Unix computer off, right? If you're turning off a Mac, you say quit or F4 on a Windows machine. There are many different ways. Shut down, no. This is the command to turn off a Unix operating system. You have to kill it. So not only I felt badly, but I actually had to kill it before putting it in a box. Now, this sounds crazy. 
This is the way I felt, by the way, okay? This, I found this photo on the internet. This is exactly how it felt. Now, I spoke to some people afterwards about this feeling. Some of them are therapists or psychologists. No, okay. <laughs> but it turns out, actually, people feel this stuff all the time. I've spoken to a college friend that after 25 years, her microwave died, quite literally. She could not get it to throw it out. She felt that, here, you guys are laughing here, this thing nourished her for 25 years. You can't just put it in the garbage. You need to give it a proper burial or the first car when you're a teenager. I just have a quick question. Have any of you felt this way? And it's okay to say yes, we're amongst friends. You have, you have, you have. Weird, huh? Okay, empathy for a box of plastic, metal, and wires. So we can establish that humans feel empathy for inanimate objects. Okay, let's start with this. How many of you have a Roomba vacuum cleaner? Huh? <laughs> you do. For those, it's these round things that go around, they, and they're getting better with each and every version of it, and they know how to get around chair. Now, the concept is very simple. You're just supposed to put it in the house, leave the house, this thing cleans your house, you come back, the house is clean. No. People actually sit there and watch this thing, enamored by the fact that it seems to be thinking and knowing what to do, so much so that there were articles written about the new pet crazies of the Roomba Vax, because this is almost replacing pets in some ways. Even worse, you can go online and buy accessories. <laughs> accessories for these things. It's a vacuum cleaner. People get emotionally attached to their vacuum cleaner. This one I love, by the way. No, no, this is on Twitter. You can find it. Some guy apparently was on a business trip writing to his wife and saying, come on, honey, maybe a photo of the house getting cleaned in something sexy would be cool, and she sent him this. <laughs> she dressed up the Roomba as a French maid, okay? I died when I saw this. So inanimate objects can trigger strong emotions, okay? And I wanted to tell you, now, can we press play on this with sound? We didn't talk about this. To the, to the regia back there? This is a robotic toy made by a Japanese company. This was made in about 2008. Oh, there you go. This is Clio, our robotic baby dinosaur by the Yugo Company of Japan. Although released back in 2008, by virtue of her mechanical complexity and programming, as of the end of 2013, she is still the most advanced robotic pet available. We call ours Ginger. Besides eating and playing tug of war with her leaf, she will recognize objects and walk around them, will respond to voices and walk towards them. Okay, you can press stop, it's okay. And when petted. So it's very interactive we'll toy. It will actually respond noises. if you caress it. And so, Snow it's cute, close. right? You can get, I mean, you can get attached to a vacuum cleaner. And you can definitely get attached to this, sleep. right? I mean, this is it. So a university did a study, by the way, in Germany, okay? And essentially the study was this. They, they asked a group of people to take this toy back home for a couple of days and then come back into the lab where they wired them up with heart monitors uh, um, and other sensors and to see their sort of like their, their sweat and emotional response and so on. And the study essentially asked them to carry out a number of things to torture this mechanical toy. 
which meant by hanging it, slamming it on the table. Actually, the toy reacts to these type of things, as you can see from the last photo. Many of the participants could not finish all the actions, and the stress response recorded was extremely high. Okay? Now, it's understandable because it's a cute toy. You know, it's almost like taking your dog and strangling it. I mean, it's not a nice thing. But would you believe it that people feel empathy even for mind-sweeping robots? And I'll tell you this in a second. But before that, I just want to talk about the word empathy for a second because we all have a different definition of it. And there is a whole study by a philosopher, Judith Stein, about empathy itself. So what is empathy? Empathy is not the way you feel about someone else. Okay, let's get this straight. Maybe you find out from a colleague, their parent died, and you feel badly and you give your condolences, but your feeling for that situation is not actually what the definition of empathy is. Empathy is putting yourself in that other person to feel what that person is feeling and when you have this rapport between two people, it's the thing in the middle between the two of you that is empathy. So when I felt badly about killing the computer, it's not that I felt badly for the computer. I literally was able to be in the soul of that computer, if you can say, to say, I have done nothing wrong. Why are you doing this to me? And I'm like, I am really sorry I have to do this. It sounds crazy. It is crazy. That's why I went with CSACO. But, but that's what, so let's go back to this. So what happened with these? Landmines are a huge worldwide problem. There are over 200 million of them. They cause all sorts of terrible things, even after the wars have ended for decades later. So there are any numbers of very sophisticated robots that they have built to try to sniff out the mines. And then usually it says there is one here, then a team comes out and tries to diffuse the mine. They say, what if we can make this a lot cheaper? So they built a type of robot that was kind of inexpensive with remote operator. You essentially let it stomp around on a minefield until it lands on a mine and a leg blows off. Okay. So the idea was let's get a platoon group of soldiers to go out there create 10 units, give them spare parts, and let's see how quickly can a field be cleaned of mines with 10 soldiers assigned to the task with so many spare legs. They start the experiment. Essentially, what you have to do is make this thing walk around and <laughs> leg blows off, and then it has to limp its way to the next mine. <laughs> like, after about four days, the platoon leader wrote back to the study team saying, I cannot continue letting my men do this exercise, it's absolutely inhumane to ask them to do this. They felt so badly that they could not get themselves to have this ugly looking thing step on a mine and blow its leg off. Okay? Empathy. So then the idea is, and this is where we try to bring it on for the work we're doing in innovation, okay? How do we use this? Now that we know that this really happens, how do we use this for the innovation solutions that we do? If digital makes you not pay attention to me because I'm on your phone right now, don't feel badly about it. <laughs> How can I build that rapport a little bit better? Okay? So something that was done above, this is a, a robotic hand, just a hand, that plays this game of rock, paper, and scissors. That robotic hand has a camera in it, so it can tell immediately before you even put out paper. <laughs> what your move is going to be, and it always wins. So they did an experiment where, just to see how do people react to this, so people are like, well, of course it always wins, it's a robot, and you can see what I'm doing. So there is no, you know, well, yeah, it won again, it won again. So like, well, 
let's program it so it loses. <laughs> so it wins, 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 as it loses. Well, yeah, of course you made it lose, <laughs> you know? And then they tried a third thing. And what they did is this, let's make it cheat, right? So if you throw out scissors and it throws out paper, then it goes to rock. <laughs> and there's an immediate transformation. People start talking to the hand saying, wait a second, you can't do that. <laughs> You're cheating. <laughs> now that triggered immediately a relationship building between the person and the machine because the machine exhibited a very human trait that of cheating. So am I suggesting that we should build robots that cheat? No. But we should understand that these very complex human relationships have built over millennia, and we need to be aware of them as we design solutions. All right, so let me tell you a very practical example. Now, this is just a stock photo off the internet, but there was actually a study done to find out if putting robots in the operating room, and you know, in this group, this is a concept that's well known, where instruments are given to the surgeon, and usually it's an assistant or a nurse or whatever it is in the operating room that does this. Well, what if we can have a robot that knows the procedure, can actually anticipate what's needed and just have it ready? If it just has it ready, the comments from surgeons where it's too pretentious, she thinks and knows what I need at this point. Okay, so let's build in where you can ask for what you need just to improve the efficiency. That's a little better, but if it immediately gives you the tool very mechanically, at the right distance, at the right speed, in the right facing order, you know, for the tool itself. Well, it's being rude if it's that way. But if you build a little bit of hesitance in that motion where it's, it's weights that split second, yeah, I can work with this. And this is the responses that you were getting. So these are extremely small factors. And we, we spoke about before behavior change and what can we do. These are the things to think about as we build this. But so far, I've talked about mechanical robotic things. The concept here really is that inanimate objects can drive health outcomes from this point of view, okay? There's really ways that you can build some of these, these empathetic or very human type of responses within what you're building as, as, as solutions. Some companies are already doing this. The same company that built the dinosaur builds the seal that's being used with Alzheimer patients, with dementia patients. It's, it's very interactive. This can give hours and hours and hours of that sort of empathetic relationship building between a person that's suffering from some very serious mental health conditions. They've also been used with autistic children. And in studies, it shows that children with very strong problems with autism can actually really develop social skills and become more confident at interactions where they can measure those with their interactions in the real world by having this type of thing, okay? So this is already something that can be done. There are any numbers of chatbots for support in mental health conditions, depression, and this is where things get really interesting. Studies show that people open up a lot more to something if they think it's, it's a bot with artificial intelligence and an actual other human being that will be much more honest with themselves and that instrument, that service, than actually talking to a real psychologist. And so this translates even into outcomes in the mental health field. And the other way that people can provide empathy or build empathy is, ironically, with themselves, okay? So there was a study done that allowed a group of patients, in this case it was women, that had an objective and goal to lose weight, to essentially build an avatar of themselves, something that looked like themselves, that could pick the hair and the body shape and the clothes and whatever. 
And it showed that if those women who were given essentially a lifestyle change, behavior change program, were able to see an avatar of themselves going through those steps and actually provide helpful suggestions to the avatar of themselves, really providing care and, and, and taking care of an avatar of themselves, those women actually met their objectives for weight loss and behavior modification a lot better than just the other group of control women where it was just the instructions, this is what you need to do. And so very strong human propensity for altruistic behavior gets kicked in when you start building systems that try to help patients this way. This is the same concept that when you're on the airplane, they tell you, put the oxygen mask first on yourself and then help the person next to you because the human condition, the, the human propensity is to help others first before you help yourself. So you make the other yourself, then you can actually increase and improve outcomes, okay? And this doesn't have to be with an avatar, it can be in the way you interact. Now, you may have heard of this next example, but this really takes you to the extreme, and this is where we get into an area that, that I believe, I mean, I get goosebumps just even thinking about it, I haven't even told you yet. But some of you may have heard that company was working at building exoskeletons, right? So essentially snap-on casts, 3D printed casts with motors, and the idea was to help paraplegic patients completely paralyzed for years, they haven't had any sensitivity or motions in their limbs, in their arms and legs, to essentially find out, is there a way through electrodes to capture brain patterns? So if I'm thinking, move your leg forward, I can capture that signal and interpret it enough so that then I can build the interface that, okay, you think, you thought about move the left leg forward, I can compute that signal and send the signal to the motor in your cast that moves your leg forward. So what they did for this is they actually built a virtual reality system, and this is a picture of the patient on the left, and what would happen is this. They would say, okay, think about moving your left forward and look down at your foot, and what that patient would see is not their leg, but an animation of a leg moving forward, right? So this is providing positive feedback to that patient. And again, the idea was only to calibrate the system so weeks later you were supposed to snap on this motorized thing and think about moving the leg forward, the motor would move and the leg would move forward. This was all they were trying to do. What happened actually is startling. A lot of these patients came back for the follow-up trainings and visits reporting feeling in their legs. I feel an itch in my leg. Some of them could actually show that they were moving their toes which hadn't happened in decades for some of them. And some of them, actually many of them, started regaining control over their bodily functions, like going to the bathroom, which for a paralyzed person you have no control over. This was a significant improvement. So this goes a little bit beyond the theme of empathy, but it definitely goes into how it is that if you give people an image of themselves to control, in this case, it actually reactivated another pathway, nervous system pathway in their body, which is resulting in sensitivity coming back to them, some motion coming back to them, and improvement quality of life. But it all started with the same idea and thinking, is how do we provide people with these types of tools in an innovative type of way? So, at the end of the day, we started with the photos and the smartphones and people not paying attention to each other because of this technology. 
But at the end of the day, if done well and really thought thoroughly, healthcare and technology can be profoundly human. And looking at the process that Kristen showed us before, where the very first step is those discovery, talking to the patients, talking to the doctors, the thing that we now suggest to our clients is you move further into the process. Okay, let's find the technology partner. Oh, is the data being secured? We are moving so far away from that concept that we end up losing the most important part. So we need to be hyper aware to keep going back, keep, keep bringing it back, keep bringing it back. And only at that point, we truly believe that, that the promise of digital health in the way that we really wish that it can happen, will happen. Okay, so this is the end of the presentation. It's been a long day, but we want to leave you with a little bit of interactive thing. We're not going to do a workshop. <laughs> okay, it's too late. But I want you to spend a minute to recall a healthcare experience where empathy was a challenge. Maybe for yourself, maybe if you're a medical provider or a doctor in your professional role, maybe yourself or a family member as a patient, okay? But we want you to think about the healthcare experience. And then think for a second, could something in digital innovation have helped? Now, I have a question about a time check. It's 6.15 and we're already running late. Can I have 10 more minutes of your time to share this amongst yourselves, to tell the person next to you, this was a difficult moment from an empathy point of view where it was a challenge. Can we do that? I know I'm asking a lot at the end of a long day. 10 minutes? All right, then since we have 10 minutes, gonna be really cruel about it. I will ask for three or four volunteers to share in this thought and maybe what the solution is. Okay, go ahead. I told you what my empathetic moment was. It wasn't in a healthcare situation, but I had to kill a computer. So it can't be worse than that. Okay, so you want to know a healthcare experience where empathy was a challenge. Where empathy was a challenge, okay. yes. This is going to be tough. Go ahead. I'm an emergency department nurse. Mm -hmm. A lot of interesting stuff coming in. Mm -hmm. And I had a 34-year-old woman who came in with a meat cleaver in the center of her head. Yes. And interestingly enough, she knew who did it. And the first question she asked was, can my husband come back and sit in the room with me? I had a really hard time managing that situation. So having empathy all the way around, I was initially having a hard time understanding why she would want the person who had done that in the room with her. So, yeah, it took a lot to figure out where I, I, to have empathy for that whole situation. Yeah, and I think, I think and this is actually a good, a good point, this also brings in legal obligation to also report what could be a crime in your point of view, right? This is something you also... Well, as a matter of, there's the criminal element, but there's also the safety element. Mm -hmm. So part of our job is, I mean, if a child comes in and we suspect that there's abuse, we have to make sure that that child is safe in all those circumstances. So there are many factors sure. going on. Yes, absolutely. I'll give you another one. So sometimes it's hard to empathize with patients. You just maybe don't connect. And I was thinking of technology innovation that could have helped. You know, now most call centers have voice recognition technology that actually has a component where it, it measures the uh, amount of anxiety on the phone call. 
And I was thinking a little light bulb that would go on and say, alert me that I'm I'm getting a little anxious here. Maybe you know, step out of the room or take a break or come back later. Could be interesting. I, that would be an innovation. I, I, absolutely. I think there can be this type of thing, especially in in high stress centers, maybe centers that may receive situations higher than the average where domestic violence or this type of abusive situation can be present. It might help a hospital staff better assess the risk factor just measuring the emotional response or giving some very silent type of response. Yes, this people are, are displaying extremely high emotion at this moment. And you yourself, I think intuitively you know, but you might not know so well. So this is something interesting. Any, any other? Yes, please. Not sure if, if it directly relates to this. Substance abuse is one of the biggest uh, kind of a nightmare in healthcare. Substance abuse? Substance abuse, yes. right? And we work very closely in, in tobacco consumption and TB-related uh, patients. And quitting tobacco is not easy. And we've seen how one of the apps actually uses empathy with the patients to actually help them go through the process. And it's, it's an entire hand-holding process of making sure that they follow. It can relate back to their experiences. Yeah, I'm going to share a very personal story around this, around tobacco. Actually, my, my father passed away at 60 years old from emphysema and from really terrible lung problems. He was a lifelong smoker, two packs a day. And he was in reanimation intensive care for two months prior to him passing. And my youngest sister, who was 22 at the time, was smoking. And we would obviously go see him in the hospital. And I took the opportunity at that point to tell her, look, next time you light up a cigarette, look at dad right now. Okay? She never smoked again. Now, there is a human behavioral component to this. And, the re and now, of course, there's also an addiction to nicotine component, which is very different and, and, and clinical in nature, right? So it, it augments the problem. But behavior change is extremely difficult. And one of the things that's most difficult in behavior change is that people have a really hard time understanding, they understand it conceptually, but feeling what the benefit is in the future, okay? And for people that study this type of human behavior, and there's a whole field of study called behavioral economics, which some of you may have heard about, or I highly recommend you Google it, behavioral economics. The ability to bring the future into the present is critical for behavior change, okay? There's a term for this. It's called hyperbolic discounting. I'll give it to you in a very practical way. If I come up to you and say, look, you can have five euros or 10 euros, which one do you want? Most people would say 10 euros. If I tell you, look, you can have five euros right now or 10 euros in a year. Which one do you want? Five euros right now, okay? It's very simple. Five euros right now is worth more than 10 euros in a year to most people, but you cannot put five years in the bank in a year and get 10 euros from an interest rate point of view. Hyperbolic discounting wants that immediate feeling right now. This is what makes behavior change so difficult because we have an extremely hard time for what happens in the future, to understand and really value that benefit in the future. So the technique to do, and there are ways to do this, if you hire us as an agent, I'm just kidding. <laughs> there are ways to do this, is to try to bring the future into the present. Now, I sort of intuitively did this in my own personal situation when I 
told my sister, the next time you light up a cigarette, think of that right now. But that's essentially the technique, is you need to give a very, in the moment, by the way, in the moment of the behavior change, this needs to come up. And it's one of the few times that you can really change embedded strong behaviors or beliefs. And there are entire fields of studies around this and several books around this, but very, very interesting subject matter to, to dwell into. Why interesting? Because our innovative digital health solutions must take these things into account in order for them to be effective. It's not about the technology. Technology is a tool. I'm sorry, I know you have a great platform, okay? But technology is a tool. But we need to really understand the human condition, the human behavior, human-centered design, as Kristen showed us, to build the types of solutions that really make a difference in people's lives. I think my 10 minutes are up. No, one more question. Please do. <laughs> you bring up that concept of delayed gratification. And when they've done that with uh, five-year-olds and marshmallows or Oreos and asking them to wait, I think one of the other profound influences on this, particularly on the human-centered design, is when we started digging more deeply into that, we found that some five-year-olds who have food insecurity, they don't know what that future looks like. So the whole concept of it actually is the better bet to take that right now because they don't know if tomorrow there's going to be breakfast. And we have so many people who are experiencing I, food insecurity, yeah. homelessness, all of the health inequities and disparities. So to your point about really being mindful about designing for the human situation, mm -hmm. there's the human, but there's also the very person-specific situation. Yeah, and, and I think really we have a whole set of behaviors that are embedded in us that are not learned. They are truly part of our genetic makeup. And we just need some small triggers from the environment to turn these on. Like I, I have a young dog. How did my dog, even at two months old, know to sort of bark at birds and try to catch them a certain way, but doesn't do it with a cat, for instance, right? And it's actually a bird hunting dog. That's kind of like the breed that it was. How does it know? <laughs> you know, no one taught it. So scarcity is an extremely strong behavioral component bred into humanity. And this is why we have huge metabolic disease issues nowadays, is because the concept of scarcity, which by the way, a lot of the food companies really play on to sell you stuff, right, that you really don't need to eat, is what brings us to overly overconsume certain types of foods that we shouldn't be eating so much of. So in children where maybe not a meal is guaranteed every day, this is triggered automatically, but it's a combination of those two things, I believe. So yes, it's important to be mindful of the context is also extremely important. And I think that's really what, what you're driving to with this. Absolutely. Well, I hope we can do this again soon, but I had a great, great time and really thank you so much for sticking through it. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Season 3 of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast and that you heard something that will trigger your curiosity and advance your digital journey. Many of the examples we bring you are outside of orthopedics, but the technologies and solutions we present are all eminently translatable to musculoskeletal care. Please consider giving us a review on your podcast platform so other people can find us. More importantly, tell a friend about our amazing community. We look forward to sharing the next episode with you. I am your host, Stefano Bini, founder and chair of both the Digital Orthopedics Conference San Francisco and this, the Digital Orthopedics Podcast.